12 ordinary men. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. When I think about these gentlemen, a couple of sets of brothers, perhaps even a third set. I'll deal with that in a couple of weeks. A politician, tax collector, and the people that nobody even pays attention to nor ever heard of other than what is listed. Let's read the Word of God. Let's start with verse 1. Jesus summoned His twelve disciples and He gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every kind of disease, every kind of sickness. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. The first, Simon, who is called Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. These are the twelve he sent out instructing them, do not go in the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter any city of the Samaritans. Father, here we are today to hear you. Father, let us set aside the stuff of this world, the distractions, the nagging, the pulling. And Father, may we hear what you have to say. Father, may we take great comfort in these 12. Father, we understand that you chose the weak. To overthrow the strong. Father, that you chose the simple to confound the wise. Lord, help us. Help us to have ears to hear. But Father, let us take this as newborn babes. Father, let us receive this word as the implanted seed that comes from truth. Help us to hear, Lord. Help us to uh, understand there is none worthy. No, not one. None righteous, no, not one. And yet, Father, you are using us to affect this world. To you, my King, my Lord, Christ's name, amen. I wanted us to look at these men because the Great Commission is to make disciples. It's not to make converts. It's not how many people can you get to say the sinner's prayer. We are to make learners, which would imply... That we have something to teach. Problem in our society today is we have a lot of opinion, very little truth. And, uh, you know, and it's, it's, it seems to be that way. Uh, I watch people and, and, and I, I deal with people who will watch the news cycle. We have a 24 hour news cycle on 9,000 channels or whatever. And about 99% of what you see there is opinion. And, and I watch people get all upset over it. I mean, they, they will, you know, uh, they'll watch some kind of news broadcast and then they walk away the rest of the day mad. And all of a sudden you realize that what they were exposed to was no information. They were just exposed to opinion. Okay. And when you do that, uh, see, I have learned that when the opinion comes on, I shut it off. I enjoy the news. I want to know what's going on. I don't want to hear your opinion about the news. All right? And uh, and yet I hear people, that, and, and I watch them. Well, they said this, and they said, and I'm like, well, wait a minute. 
But what were the facts? Tell me the facts. And as soon as I hear the announcer or reporter or whatever say, well, we think I shut off. Because that means you don't know. All right. One of the joys that I have is that when I go into this book. I know. I don't have to filter it. I wonder what he implied by that. I don't have to do any of that. I read it and thus saith the Lord. It's that simple. I don't have to negotiate it. Now listen, I don't want to get the pie in the sky thing. Right? There's times when I read it and I'm like, are you kidding me? Okay? I mean, for some reason I keep being drawn back to Ezekiel. Alright, he was a priest and prophet. That's amazing to me. Okay, because usually you're a priest and everybody likes you. And if you become a prophet, they want to kill you. He was both. I mean, the people wanted him to take him to God. But when he was bringing God to the people, that's when they thought that they should cut him in half. Okay, now you would think about it. If you've got the whole world is trying to kill you, that that would be enough turmoil in your life. But then to have God say, I want you to lay on your left side for 390 days. You know what Ezekiel did? He laid on his left side for 390 days. You know what my first response would have been? Are you talking to me? (laughs) Then when he got done with it, he says, now I want you to lay on your right side for 40. You know what my response would have been then? Do you have an issue? What is your problem, God? I mean, I said I'd go. I'm doing it. His wife died and God said, you shall not grieve. And yet he's one of the greatest prophets the nation of Israel ever seen. And if you go through it, I mean, there's many more that Ezekiel went through and you're sitting there going, dude, I don't. And he never argued. All right. All right. And you know what's amazing? God never said, this is why I want you to lay on your side. This is why I don't want you to grieve for your wife. He never got an answer for that. Even Job. Job didn't know what was going on. And he was asking God why. And you know what? God never told him. Now I get the privilege of reading the book of Job saying, God's proving to Satan what true faith is. Job didn't even know that. Okay? When I look at these men, I say, why? Why these men? Why these men? Simon Peter. John's gospel always refers to him to Simon, as Simon Peter. His fleshly name was Simon. Jesus gave him the name Peter the Rock. But John couldn't figure out whether he was in the flesh or in the spirit, so he called him Simon Peter. He had a brother named Andrew, and all throughout Scripture, he's always referred to as Peter's brother, Andrew. He has the sons of thunder, James and John. James was the first apostle martyred, killed by the blade under Herod. You have Philip and Bartholomew, studied the Scriptures, wanted to know 
When was Messiah coming? When was Messiah coming? Thomas, he gets a bad rap. Doubting Thomas. No, he wasn't doubting. He wanted to be with Jesus. He wanted to be as close to Jesus as as anybody. Go look at it. If we go back into Jerusalem, we're going to die. I'll go with him. Should we not die with him? That was Thomas. So when all the other disciples saw him, except for Thomas, he thought they'd lost their minds. I ain't believing him unless I see him. So Jesus said, here, touch my hands, touch my side. Because he wanted to be with Jesus. Now we move into one, the only disciple that is ever listed in Scripture by what was their trade. It never says Peter the fisherman. But it always says Matthew the tax collector. I was talking about this in Sunday school this morning. Many of us in the evangelical community today are attached to stars. We like stars. Some of you remember Mr. Tebow when he was a quarterback for the Denver Broncos. Everybody wanted him to speak at their church. Everybody. He's powerful. He's a powerful speaker. Wonderful speaker. Powerful speaker. You got to have him. He's supposed to speak in First Baptist in Dallas. First Baptist in Dallas was founded by a guy named C.W. Criswell, an expositor of the word who preached with power and might. Big mega church. But they take a stance against homosexuality. And everybody started yelling at Tebow. How in the world do you go down and talk to a bigoted church in Dallas? So he didn't do it. But what I've learned is it's only those big churches can afford Mr. Tebow. Of course, he gives it to his charity. I find that fascinating. His dad spoke at a big charismatic church up in Denver. Tim's dad did it for free. You know what he taught on? Imputationism. There ain't a charismatic on the planet to this day knows what that is. And I thought, there is an irony. We want stars. We want stars. I think all the churches that I've preached at, I've never charged a dime. Of course, I'm not a star. And I don't play one on TV. And I did not stay in the Holiday Inn Express. They are attracted to this. I I see this a lot. Uh, A lot of church plants will bring their stars in for a season. But I'm not saying that there's these people aren't saved. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is, what is the fascination? Is the fascination with the 
star? Or is the fascination with the word being proclaimed? I mean, you go to a big charismatic church and teach on imputation. (laughs) That's one of the greatest doctrines in Holy Scripture. And yet, very few even understand what it means. I look at Jesus, on the other hand, he was different. I look at this crew, and I can easily say with great confidence and great authority, these guys weren't famous. I mean, I look at Peter. Peter kind of reminds me of me in this way. Without divine intervention, I ain't catching no fish. And yet he made his living as a fisherman. But every time I watch him fish, he doesn't catch nothing. And then God says, throw the net on the other side of the boat. And he gets it so much it almost sinks his boat. That's what I need. Okay? One of the things that I see in this group, they weren't famous. Not only were they not famous, if you're really honest with this text... Some would make people extraordinarily angry. And that's who we're looking at today. One that would make average people angry. Matthew, the tax collector. All right? Do we know any tax collectors? I do. Actually, my accountant used to be a tax collector. That's why I hired him as an accountant. (laughs) keep me out of jail and I don't want to pay one nickel more than what I have to. Tax gathering in the time of the New Testament was a little different than what we have today. A tax gatherer was employed by Rome to collect the taxes From his own people. If you go back through history of the great quote unquote civilizations that conquered massive amounts of real estate, you will find they all have one thing in common. We call it conscribes. That when they conquered you, they took your men and made them soldiers. Whether it was the Roman Empire, the Greek Empire, you just go down through history. The Nazis did it. The Russians did it. If they took you, then they put your people to work for them after they conquered you. Same thing in the writing of the New Testament. Rome was not going to start an IRS that covered civilized world. What they did is they hired the locals to tax their own countrymen. All right. What was amazing and why it was so easy to gather these people is because the Roman tax system allowed the tax collectors to keep anything they got in excess of what was owed to Rome. This, needless to say, encouraged bribes and let's say kind of begot abuses. They could also write their own tax law, the tax collector. So a tax collector, 
and let's say Judea. He could tax just about anything he felt that needed to be taxed. He could tax roads. He could tax bridges. He could tax harbors. He could tax the axles on your wagon. He could tax donkeys. He could tax packages. He could tax letters. He could tax imports. He could tax exports. He could tax any merchandise he deemed necessary. So, needless to say, um, you could call it a lucrative job. And it would be very easy to say, you could get extraordinarily wealthy very easy. Very easy. You paid a tax, the tax collector paid a tax, a tribute, to Rome for the franchise. And then the franchise was yours. You could tax whatever you deemed necessary to tax. And then you sent Rome their part and you kept whatever was left. Okay? You know a great tax collector. Every one of you. If you were raised in a church or went to VBS when you were a little wee child... You sang the song about who? Zacchaeus, the wee wee tax collector who climbed up in a tree. Luke chapter 19, verse 2. There was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector and he was rich. See, the chief tax collector sold the franchises so he didn't have to work as hard. Pyramid scheme. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. Okay? Zacchaeus was wealthy, very, very wealthy. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down, for today I must stay at your house. This would have stunned everybody. Because I got news for you. In Israel, there was no one more hated, not Gentiles, not Samaritans, than the tax collector. Because as far as Israel, as far as the Jews considered them, that was the traitor of all traitors. He was wealthy. And he hurried, and he came down, and he received him gladly. And when they saw it, they began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. That's what the religious elite were saying. And Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. 
What was Jesus' response? And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to the house because he too is a son of Abraham. Why? You know what that means to me? Salvation's seen. It's seen. He is willing to give half to the poor. And if he's defrauded anybody, which you know he has, he will give four times back. Salvation is seen. Listen, what I want you to see with Zacchaeus and Matthew is you don't have to be famous, nor do past sins keep you from being used by God. And I don't care what the sin is. Now listen, to a Jew, Zacchaeus and Matthew were the pit. There is no way that they could ever be redeemed because of what they have done to the heirs of Abraham. It's impossible for anyone to cheat their own birthright. As I said, Matthew is the only disciple that is listed associated with his occupation. You know why? This is very clear to me. Extremely clear to me. Here is something that I have seen missing in the church community today. When I came to salvation, I was staggered because I knew what I had done. I knew what I was like. I knew what I was capable of. And why in the world would he have saved me? Why? Now, there's a lot of other people asking the same question, but that's beside the point. One of the things that has amazed me in the body of Christ today, very few people ever think about that. I had a person one time years ago tell me, the reason that I have such a zeal for the Lord is that I was in such darkness that when the light hit me, I was overwhelmed. That's not true. Every single one of you were in the same degree of darkness that I was. But you know what has happened? Too many in the body of Christ today don't look at that as all. Well, I wasn't that bad. I never stole. Well, I had a couple of Issues with infidelity, but that's just in the past. You know, I got drunk once. I watched a dirty movie. But it wasn't that bad. And I don't do it on a regular basis. We have lost the awe of our salvation. Matthew never lost the awe of his salvation. That's why when he writes, it is Matthew... The tax collector. How in the world could he have ever saved a tax collector? A person who betrayed his own nation. A person who betrayed his own people. He saved. And Matthew never lost the awe 
that he was saved. The key to your and my discipleship is never lose your sense of awe over Christ's forgiveness. I don't care what you do. He who says he's without sin calls God a liar. So you're going to sin while you're still in this earthen vessel. But don't lose the awe of his forgiveness. I watch people walk around feeling guilty. Well, I just don't understand. I can't over overcome this. I can't over overcome. Let me tell you something. Is your standard of righteousness all of a sudden higher than God's? Is it? Mine ain't. I never look at a single person and say, God can't save them. God can't forgive them. Why? I know where I came from. But you know what? Every single one of you have come from the same dark, nasty hole that I came from. I tell people this. Everything you thought about, I just went ahead and did it. I was willing to pay the consequence of it. You were afraid of the consequences, so you didn't do it. I wouldn't. It's the only difference between you and me. Maybe not even all of you. Matthew never forgot what he had been. What he had been saved from. He never lost his sense of awe. He never forgot of his unworthiness for Christ. He understood it. Because when you start understanding that there is absolutely nothing about you that's worth redeeming, then it is amazing grace. It is amazing forgiveness. How could this be? How awesome of a God who can overlook mine and has sent His Son to pay my penalty? How can that be? Once you are living in that sphere, you're like Matthew. You're like Matthew. I want to back you up a minute because I want to show you something that I'll, about Matthew that sometimes we forget. It starts in chapter 9 of his gospel. Chapter 9, the first eight verses, Matthew wants to set the scene Okay. Getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over the sea, Sea of Galilee, and came to his own city. And they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. Some of the scribes said to themselves, this fellow blasphemes. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, are you thinking evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or say, get up and walk. Now think about that for a second. They say, 
Jesus said to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. Well, only God can forgive sin. So you're claiming to be God. And then Jesus rebuts them this way. Which is easier for God? To forgive the sins or to tell the paralytic to get up and walk? Which is easier, to forgive sins or to heal? Touche. Touche. I win. Why? They would already knew he was doing miracles. They already knew. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, then he said, say to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed and go home. He got up and he went home. Which is easier for God? Either one. Either one. And then the crowd saw this. They were awestruck and glorified God who had given such authority to men. Which is easier? Which brings me. See, Jesus was charged with blasphemy there. He was going to forgive sin. But then he tells the guy to get up and walk. So Jesus set the stage. Look, forgive him of his sins. Get up and walk. Which one's harder for God? I just proved to you neither one of them are really that challenging. Listen, Jesus wanted the crowd, it says they were all struck and they've glorified God. He wanted the crowd to know that his miracles testified of his deity. Who am I? I am God. I am God incarnate before you. I say your sins are forgiven. They're forgiven. Why? Get up and walk. Tell me where I'm lacking in my authority. And that's one of the amazing things I love about the gospel of, of Matthew. Is that he starts out with his royal birth. Then he goes through and says he has authority over everything. If you go look at his miracles that he does that is documented by Matthew, there's nothing he doesn't have absolute authority over. And therefore, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And lo, I'm with you always. Even to the end of the age. There's nothing I'm not in control of. There's nothing I do not have ultimate authority over. Even of the forgiveness of sins or the paralytic to get up and walk. As God, he could easily forgive sins. And he could easily forgive sins as easily as he could heal any disease. Go look at what he did. I was reading Edelsheim who wrote about the, the time of Palestine at the time of Christ. And he says, for all intents and purposes, disease and death ceased for three years. He didn't even have to be at your cemetery. He could call you from the tomb. He could heal you from across the nation. Because of who he was. Okay, now immediately after this, Verse 9, Jesus went out from there and he saw a man called Matthew sitting in a tax collector's booth. And he said, follow me. What did Matthew do? 
He got up and followed. Now listen, every one of us is going to, oh yes, amen brother, amen. Really? What if God tells you to give up that really good job, that safe job, that secure job, because I want you to follow me. Now. Well, but Lord, look how much I can give to you if I am gainfully employed. Well, wait a minute. If he can forgive sin and heal all diseases, your gainful employment means what to him? I only own creation. And you're going to add what to my coffers? Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teachers eating with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician. See, even Jesus uses sarcasm. But those who are sick, interesting, isn't it? But go and learn what it means. I desire compassion, not sacrifice, for I do not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. See, the Pharisees were sick with their sin, their own very own sin. But they thought they were healthy. When I came to salvation, I was convinced I knew exactly where the Lord was going to put me. Okay? I knew exactly the people that I had the ability to reach. Okay? The lifestyle I had led, the things that I had saw, the things that I had done, I knew that that is where God's going to put me. Gosh, was I wrong. You know where he put me? With those who were generationally saved and were sick and had no idea they were sick. The self-righteous. The experts in the law. I would have preferred mine. But he put me among the religious elite. Because the religious elite, they're not all pastors. I'm third generation Baptist. You act like it. Okay? That's where he put me. I complain about it. I'll, I'll be honest with you. I don't like messing with these knotheads. Ain't nothing like trying to tell somebody they're sick who is convinced they're not. Okay? I mean, that'll wear you out. But you know what it does? It proves to you over and over, moment by moment, you are not adequate for this task. The Pharisees were sick. They thought they were healthy. Matthew and the rest of them knew that they were sinners. And they also knew they were in desperate need of a Savior. That is missing in the body of Christ right now. There is no desperation for salvation. 
I had a Russian pastor, I remember one time saying, in America, you are under greater spiritual oppression because you add Christ to your lives. In Russia, he is life. There is no plan B. They don't do it based on convenience. You know, one of the things that stands out to me about Matthew, when we have that awe, I mean, that you can't even articulate how awesome your salvation is. How can you have anything but humility? That is missing in the lives of believers. And when I see someone who's hanging on their pride, their achievements, their goals, their tasks. I know a person who has lost their awe of their salvation. But that's okay. That's okay. God will bring it back. He'll bring it back. When there's a sense of awe at receiving of this gift... How can we not continually praise God? How can we not? It should be ongoing, ever ceasing, in public, in private, wherever we're at. But one of the things that is missing is we've lost the awe of our salvation. I've been saved. I've been in Bible study. I've even taught a couple of Bible studies. I helped with the revival. You know, I made Kool-Aid at the VBS thing. Dude, I can rock and roll this thing. I'm good. I'm good. No, you're sick. You're sick. And God intervened into your life and dragged you out of a pit that you can't even imagine what the smell of the stench is of that sin. And you think you're okay. You show, James says... You show me your works, I'll show you the works of my faith. Why? Because James stood in awe. Matthew stood in awe. Matthew, the tax collector, the scum of Israel. He saved me. But he lines it up with the paralytic who got up and walked and sins were forgiven. So when he came to Matthew and said, follow me, you note that? Okay. Okay. I'm in. Why? He forgave that man. He can forgive me. Even me. You know what's really scary about it? He can forgive even you. Regardless. Listen. Ask yourself a simple question. No matter the circumstance, no matter the situation, no matter the darkness or the degree of darkness that you're in, no matter the number of times you've fallen and had to get back up, can you continually praise the awesomeness of your salvation? Man, I've seen people who were saved that scared me and I hoped that whatever they had wasn't contagious. I'm saved. Why are you mad about it? 
because that's a person who's lost the awe of their salvation. Matthew never lost that awe. He was overwhelmed. Overwhelmed. Brothers and sisters, let us walk from here. Overwhelmed with our redemption, our salvation, to the point that we are in continual praise to the Lord who saved us in Christ, in Christ alone. Father, help us. Help us to be in awe as Matthew was. Help us to become learners, good learners, solid learners, hungering and thirsting for your righteousness and your kingdom. Father, help us. Help us to have eyes to see. Help us to look around and see all of them that are in darkness. And yet, Father, may we reflect the joy of our salvation. Father, may we understand the awesomeness of our Redeemer. But, Father, may we understand the awesomeness of being redeemed. Help us, Lord. It's a strange time. But, Father, the fields are ripe. They're white for harvest. Father, begin with us that we may reach them and we may show them the awesomeness of You who spoke existence into being. In Christ's name, amen.